So the loud torrent and the world winds roar, but bind him to his native mountains more. Oliver Goldsmith. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening, and uh, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. If this is your first episode, welcome. We have a very large catalog to kind of go back to. Uh, and I would like to, again, thank everyone. Um, March has been an unexpectedly big month for me in terms of number of downloads. Um, it's the most downloaded month ever, uh, beating last or this past December, um, quite surprisingly. Um, I, I expected kind of a come down from December, and January did, and but it was still a very good month. In February... Um, was actually surprisingly like low in terms of just general, uh, which I figured you know that would probably happen, um, just due to you know people recovering from the holidays. But March was just a was a huge month for me in terms of downloads. So uh, thank you everyone who has been listening and who has been uh, sharing and reviewing. Uh, it, it's been very helpful, um, and that doesn't even include YouTube, which. Um, that channel has seen, uh, I now have over 500 views there alone. Uh, so thank you all for listening. It, it means a lot. And if, um, you continue to kind of share and, uh, rate and review and all that good stuff, um, it, I really, really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, on YouTube front, I'm going to have another couple of episodes uploaded there this week. So we are slowly but surely catching up and ev- eventually it'll get to the point where, uh, that updates kind of the same time as the other sites. So, um, but please feel free to keep listening when and where you can. Ah, uh, now uh, with all that kind of <laughs> stuff out of the way, um, let's go ahead and progress. Um, I haven't had any feedback um, that just wasn't you know just the general hey good job or positive stuff, and I didn't have any questions. Um, you know, to kind of clarify from the last couple of episodes. Um, and nothing jumps to my mind after, um, you know, after those that I forgot to mention or I felt like I should clarify. So if you have any questions or feedback for that uh, last episode or any of the prior episodes, and I mean any of them, uh, please let me know. Um, I am now back and recording at my regular time. Uh, last week's was uh, an episode that um, I'd recorded a little bit earlier than I normally do during the week. And um, uh, I am back from my bachelor trip to Cherokee. And I went to um, the casino there. It was it was a lot of fun. I did not lose money. I ended up being up $85 overall, which isn't a huge amount, but uh, I'll take it. So... Uh, now, with all of that stuff out of the way, let us descend uh, the rugged Hindu Kush mountains and get into um, the Indian subcontinent, or I guess the wider South Asia. Although this episode will actually mostly be kind of uh, kind of window dressing or, or getting us familiar with the region uh, that we're going to be moving into and covering for the next few episodes. Um, so I touched on how humans entered the region in the last week's episode, but just to review, um, there are around three or maybe might consider three and a half 
primary ways to get into India by land from Western Eurasia. Um, and we'll talk about how you would get into that region from the east or from the north later. Uh, but this is what we're talking about now. Um, so the first route is that you can follow the coast uh, to the south of the Iranian Plateau. And this was, again, the route that was probably the main point of entry during the initial Homo sapien migration into South Asia. Um, and this would have been easier at that time. The water levels were lower, so it, you would have had more space between the shore and the mountains of um, the Iranian Plateau. Uh, and not to mention, of course, the fresh rivers and streams flowing down from said um, mountains uh, into the sea. Now, what you cross what is now uh, the Hub River, uh, travel over the subcontinent would be much easier. Um, the modern-day city of Karachi in Pakistan is just a few miles south of where this river enters into the Indian Ocean. Um, and this, would, this route, of course, it remains in use even after the water levels rise. Uh, it's a very important trade route, though, um, as we will see, um, trade via ship becomes much more uh, used as time goes on. But uh, yes, there are still plenty of land routes uh, through this region, um, at least comparatively. The second route uh, is by making your way southwest and west out from the various mountain valleys of the western end of the Iranian Plateau. Uh, this is a much more difficult journey to make in the best of times, um, and this requires travel through an arid desert. But if you can get through that, you would find um, lakes, rivers uh, south um, created by runoff from uh the ice and the rains of the Kush. Now, from there, you would have uh, two options to move forward. The first would be to cross uh, another smaller desert. Excuse me. Sneeze there. And then, uh, once you crossed that smaller desert, then you would have the option to either descend through a pass of, a, the, I believe they're the Toba Kakari Mountains, and that is the Pashto name for the mountains. Um, I'm not sure of the name, historically speaking, just yet. Uh, but I believe the rough translation uh, is that uh, it is the urge to repent mountains. Uh, and as you can guess from the name, um, this is not an easy trip down the mountains. Uh, there is water and things like that you know, that you could survive on. It's just... Um, it, so it isn't as much of an issue because there are, uh, you know, there's a lot of sp scattered ponds, lakes, streams, rivers, things like that. Um, it's just, I believe the mountains to be very steep and that the paths down are uh, through some very jagged and rough terrain. Um, but once you descend from there, you would enter into a, drive, uh, a drier plain dotted by a few small scattered sources until you came upon the middle of the Indus River and its fertile shores before it bends south towards the sea. Though again, at the 8,000-6,000 BC p 
period, this region was probably much more green and fertile due to more rainfall, as well as other factors uh, that we'll discuss shortly. Um, now, the second option after um, the you know, you cross that Iranian plateau uh, desert uh, would be to move to the northeast and through a large, long mountain pass until you get to a sizable river that I mentioned in the last episode. That, of course, being the Kabul River. Uh, now, I know I mentioned it last time, but briefly, I'm going to expand on the name a little. Uh, so no one knows the exact origin of... Uh, of the name, and we've mentioned a few times over our previous seasons that hydronyms tend to be among the longest-lasting or hardest to erase uh, when it comes to, uh, I guess, the name origin. Um, the earliest written record of the name is from the Sanskrit language and Avestan, uh, which uh, that is uh, Kupa. Uh, now I know I did a little bit. Of work on the Sanskrit dictionary, which you can peruse online, and there are a few words that were spelled similarly and shared pronunciation, at least in the first two syllables. Uh, uh, the f- the two words uh, that shared, you know, uh, similar pronunciation and syllables um, were uh, kub arya or kub arya. Uh, the first is more or less, I guess, having a bad wife, while the second pronunciation is just the, the noun for a bad wife. Now, um, I don't know how this could relate to a river. Um, there are a few other words with similar spellings, but with emphases or with a different emphasis on the syllables. So for things like a carriage or humpbacked man or a bad husband, Um, They're spelled similarly, they just are uh, pronounced a little bit differently than uh, kub'ah. The closest word that has anything to do with water uh, is uh, uh, kub'anyu, which uh, means desirous of water, or if you're feeling lazy with your translation, um, you could say it just means thirsty. So, you know, take take that as you will. so as none of these really fit all that well, it's possible that this was just what the composers of the Sanskrit and Avastan sources heard the name of the river to be and passed it on without knowing what it meant. So they they just heard uh, kub, uh, Kuba and, you know, or heard something similar to it and they wrote it down as that. So, again, not a really great idea on the origin of the name or its true meaning. Uh, now, uh, you can then follow that river to the southeast where you reach uh, the point where the river is joined by the Kunar River. Uh, and this is flowing southwest down from the glaciated parts of the Hindu Kush. Uh, this river has a couple of different names um, used by several local groups um, using their various languages and dialects to describe essentially their section of the river. Um, You know, going down, you know, to their various villages or their their main cities for their various 
uh, ethno-linguistic groups, you know, you, you'll find the river called different things for those sections. Um, as for Kunar, I could not get a firm etymology uh, from any of them, uh, but a couple of them appear to be related to the Sanskrit word kasetra, uh, which means, uh, which I should say refers to either a specific area of land or land that is either cultivated or just in use for a specific purpose. In this case, it could even possibly mean that the land is in use by this river. Um, the Kunar flows through a wide valley that makes it possible to walk through this mountain region, mountainous region fairly easily. Um, the river itself isn't very navigable. Um, there are, of course, some places where you could uh, boat down or raft down, uh, you know, like rafts or things like that. Uh, but these sections are broken up every so often by very violent rapids. So um, most of the travel would take place through the valley rather than the river. Uh, but of course, this is made easier by the fact that you can drink the, the river's water without having too much worry. Uh, now, when you get to the confluence of the Kunar and the Kaba rivers, you have a choice to make if you're trying to get to, uh, I guess, South Asia. You can either travel upstream of the Kunar and find uh, there are various mountain paths uh, that you can get through. Um, and then the um, and then once you find your range through, uh, you could continue south um, along the headwaters of um, the various smaller rivers uh, that flow south, like uh, the Swat or Indus rivers, and there are others, but um, that's where their headwaters kind of form. Now, eventually the mountains give way to hills and then to much flatter terrain that is again made fertile and lush by the aforementioned rivers. Uh, the second option that you have to reach this point is just to continue to follow the Kabul River until you get to what is today known as the Khyber Pass. Now, there are other smaller passes that kind of form a network in this region of the mountains, but this is the largest one. And uh, while all the routes I have mentioned have seen, you know, continued traffic um, at various times for different reasons, um, you know, during all of human history, almost all large-scale land invasions or raids of South Asia from the West, um, at least when we're talking about land invasions, came through the Khyber Pass. Uh, the only one I can even think of off the top of my head uh, that did not follow this route is Alexander the Great. Uh, he marched via the Kunar River route, uh, which we'll get into in the future. But the Khyber Pass, at least for uh, large-scale organized groups, uh, remains the primary point of access into South Asia. Now, it's hard to kind of convey how different this part of the world is from the Levant or Anatolia or um, really any part of Asia uh, that we've talked about so far this season. Obviously, the mountains are a big factor. Uh, the tallest mountain in Anatolia 
Mount Ararat is, um, I think, it's around 5,135, 140 meters, which is about, you know, which is about 16,900 feet, something in that range. Um, in Persia or modern day Iran, it is Mount uh, Damabond, which is uh, it's 5,600 meters, and um, that you know, which puts it right around 18,400 feet. So uh, the highest point in the Kush is uh, the peak is uh, Terich Mir, which is 7,708 meters. Uh, which is about uh, 2,000, or sorry, 25,300 feet. And just the sheer area, like it just in terms of, uh, you know, breadth and width uh, uh, that those mountains cover uh, dwarf any of the other ranges that we've really gotten into um, this season. So mountains are a very huge part of this region specifically. Um and, you know, those mountains are, you know, they make it travel, you know, harder. It's not impossible. It's never been impossible. There's always going to be a constant uh, flux of people back and across uh, those mountains. Um, now, it does limit them, especially, you know, at this early stage, um, but as technology advances and, you know, animal husbandry and things like that change, you know, it becomes an easier journey. Um, but those mountains also provide, you know, other things aside as a barrier or a uh, road bump in travel. It's also providing, um, you know, uh, minerals, uh, metals, uh, rivers, uh, these rivers that are flowing down that we'll be discussing a lot when it comes to this specific region um, of South Asia, you know, the mountains and their runoff and them catching just, you know, rains and things like that, um, you know, they have a huge impact on the environment. And there are other factors, of course, um, you know, the Kush and the Iranian plateau and the fact that the entire Indian subcontinent is kind of wedged underneath the Eurasian plate, uh, is uh, causes a huge amount of seismic activity, which again is affecting the people who live here. Um, that's not to say that there are not, you know, of course, earthquakes in Anatolia. We've seen that very recently, um, but it is something. As far as I'm aware, the region is much more active. Um, so this is something that's going to, of course, you know, play a factor in the history of the region, as well as something that's already been affecting the people who live here. Um, another factor that we're going to discuss is how, you know, plants are different, uh, what crops are available here, or at least I should say what uh, crops are available to be domesticated. Um, how is that different from what is available in uh, the Middle East or Southwest Asia, whatever you like refer to it as? Um, are they different? Did one region provide 
these crops to the other or vice, you know, vice versa. Um, this is all stuff that has been debated and has been talked about, and we're going to be doing that here in the next few episodes. Um, how are the animals different? If you haven't listened to my episode on domestication, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen uh, to the talk about cattle, if nothing else. Uh, India is home to the zebu cow. Uh, those are those humped cows. Um, they most, is at least as far as I'm concerned, and again, there's still a matter of a little bit of a debate, but I think most people now recognize that uh, people living in the Indian subcontinent definitely had a hand in, um, or that at least I should say that they definitely um, domesticated their cow uh, right around the same time as people were domesticating cattle uh, in the West. Um, there are different breeds, there's different genetic lineage that's able to be traced. Um, and there, of course, since then, there has been you know interbreeding of some of these species, but it is something that ha- happens around the same time. I think in terms of actual physical evidence, um, I think uh, the Indian cow domestication probably happened slightly later and I'm talking you know it probably started maybe a hundred years or so later it's not a huge stretch of time uh, and you know I don't think it would have been possible for uh, the groups in the west even you know even if they had a couple hundred years that they would have been able to domesticate the cow enough to drive them through these rough mountainous uh, river valleys uh, to get a large number into the region. Now, once you know you get more docile animals, or you develop um, boats uh, that are capable of carrying these type of animals, then you definitely see an uptick. I'm sure, and I mean uh, an uptick in, in trade, or at least um, moving the animals from one region to the other. And again, it should be noted that it's not just the um, you know, Western cows moving into India, the Indian cows are moved uh, into places like Egypt and the Horn of Africa uh, because those cows are much better, uh, are able to much better deal with uh, heat and dryness uh, than the cows, you know, that were domesticated from um, Middle Eastern strains. Um, another factor uh, that we'll be talking about is... Um, you know, different crop domestication. Um, this is one that's been a little bit controversial in terms of, um, you know, did India develop their own crops or were they imported from the Iranian plateau area uh, or further west? Um, we'll get into that. Uh, that's a very important um discussion that's especially going on right now it's it's kind of seen an uptick in stuff recently um i definitely think that there were plenty of crops domesticated in india um you know things like uh, pepper um probably came from the southern tip of the indian subcontinent as well as plenty of others um it's very possible that um jujubes were domesticated in uh, in the kunar river valley um, these are also sometimes referred to as Chinese dates. Now, 
you know, how much of that is done, you know, solely in India or if it's being, you know, domesticated simultaneously in different regions. Um, we'll get into that. But there, there's a lot that India has that there is not available in the Middle East. Um, and we'll, we'll get into how all this stuff is divided. Um, and uh, just to kind of, I guess, prepare for the next couple of episodes, um, we will be dealing with a lot of uh, the revisionism side of uh, warfare advancement and revisionism um, due to, shall we say, modern day political concerns. Um, this is a very um, controversial subject in some parts of um India and Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, for several reasons. Uh, You have, of course, the legacy of colonialism. Uh, You have, you know, the animosity between the countries of India and Pakistan. You have each of those countries' internal political divisions between, uh, you know, their own left and right wing and, you know, their, as well as, you know, ethnic minority tensions, linguistic minority tensions. There's a whole lot to kind of dive in. And uh, I feel like we are going to get in touch with some controversies the next couple of weeks. Now, for my listeners in the U.S., it's probably not going to be a too big of a deal. But I do have a couple of listeners in India, and um, I think as well, in I have seen, uh, I guess, my heat map show up uh, with Pakistan as well as South Africa. So, and I know that there is a sizable uh, population in South Africa that is of uh, Indian descent. And I just want to go ahead and just say, you know, I'm just trying to do the best with the sources I have. I am going to be making kind of judgments on this stuff. Um, but that's not going to be because I have a dog in the fight in this. I, I really, you know, I'm very much of, of the opinion that, you know, a country's uh, internal matters should be between those people. I'm not going to try to influence one way or the other. I'm just going to kind of talk about the sources I am able to read. Um, and that's, you know, and let me be clear, there there is a very good uh amount of sources to get into there's a lot uh you know say what you will about uh british colonization but it has kind of given um a kind of a joint language for uh some of these groups to be able to communicate with with each other um i know i've been watching some uh indian um videos on youtube made by various uh indian groups or indian uh content creators um, and they all speak um, either something like Urdu or Hindi, you know. So they they're speaking their primary language is a, a regional dialect, uh, but they are making their videos in English with their you know with their primary dialects subtitle, uh, so that other people in India or Pakistan can consume it. And um, you know that is something that is very helpful. Um, now, uh, I think that even when these uh, different sources make mistakes um, or they say things that I don't think are necessarily correct, um, 
that doesn't mean that they're 100% correct or that they do not have good points. In fact, I think we'll see that a lot of these uh, uh, sources uh, have uh, valid criticisms or uh, concerns or are providing valid information um, about the subjects at hand. It's just a question of how much you're reading into it, how much is correct, or incorrect. Um, so that's something that I'm going to try to be as fair as possible about. Um, and of course, you know, we all have our own biases. I'm no exception. Uh, but I try to be cognizant of my biases and I'm going to try to be as fair as possible. Um, but I'm also, if I think something is wrong, I'm going to say I don't think this is right. So just bear that in mind. And this is not a personal attack on any of those, um, creators or scholars that I, you know, that I disagree with. Um, and it, when, especially when it comes to things like archaeology and this prehistorical stuff, we could all be wrong. Uh, I could very easily be wrong. They could very easily be right. I'm just going by the, you know, the evidence that you know, has been compiled so far. Uh, so that is something uh, to keep in mind. And I hope you look forward to it. I hope, I think a little bit of controversy uh, and disagreement and study and all that stuff is uh, very important for uh, academic advancement and knowledge. So uh, I hope you look forward to all that. Um, and I haven't really talked about the people too much for this episode, and it's getting close to 30 minutes. So um, obviously you will have descendants of the first groups of humans that entered into South Asia. They are still around, um, though depending on the way the weather worked, um, they may have moved further south or further east. Um, India, in addition to its mountains and uh, things like that and seismic activity, also has to worry about the monsoon season. Um, and this is something that is no exception even uh, at this earlier stage where they were again probably receiving a little bit more regular rainfall um, but what the monsoon is is it's basically kind of the summer rainy season and then they also have a slightly um, uh, cold dry uh, winter monsoons as well and there is um now, I don't think India has to deal with the dry monsoons. I think that's something that you only think uh, that you would only see something like in the in the Tibetan plateau region. I think the ones uh, that you deal with in um, uh, India and Australia all happen in the summer. Um, and that's something that you know, you do have to take into account there. Um but I'm going to double check that because I think it's going to be, it's definitely going to be important in future episodes. But um, just keep that in mind. Um, now, uh, of course, again, like I said, uh, the travel from the West uh, is always happening, I think. Um, now, the question is how much of it is happening. Um, we talked about how Central Asia had been very much depopulated during the Younger Dryas and probably maybe a thousand years or so before that. Um, now, 
I think as we get to the 8000 BC time frame and we go forward, you're going to see more and more people from Central Asia come in. Um, and, but the routes through the south of the Iranian plateau along the coast, I think that route is always open. Now, I don't think it's a huge number of people, I, but I do think it is a steady uh, number of people. And uh, that's not to say it was all one way. It's not to say it was permanent. It's not to say that these people were, um, you know, moving in to kind of take over. I, I think there was probably uh, just, you know, general kind of proto-commerce or just, you know, standard hunter-gathering, you know, migrations. Um, but yeah, so you're getting to the Indus River. It's a very a large, um, fertile region. It's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a beacon. It's going to, it's going to draw a lot of people from a lot of different places in. Uh, especially from people who are maybe trying to get out of the rocky, uh, colder confines of uh, the Hindu Kush mountains or uh, the Eurasian steppe to the north of that. Um, so India and or South Asia as a whole is always serving as this kind of drawing force, either for land or resources, what have you. And that is something that the people... Um, that are living there in our time frame uh, probably had to deal with. Um, but uh, next week, I think that's probably a good place to start. I know I haven't talked about too much specifics, but um, again, I felt like it was important to kind of set the scenes for our next few episodes. Uh, but next week, we will be talking about um, a, a archaeological site, and I'm going to uh, butcher this a little, uh, Mehagar or Mahargar. Um, this is kind of a very important site, um, especially when it comes to, I guess, the foundations of South Asian civilization. Um, and it's a very interesting site. There's a lot of very good information on this, and there's also some, um, shall we say, very hard to source information, at least when it comes to online sources. So uh, I hope you look forward to it. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions or feedback or comments or concerns, please let me know. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope you will continue to listen and enjoy. Uh, please provide any feedback, subscribe where you can. Uh, and I'd like to thank you all for listening again. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Goodbye.